Thank you all. If you would, take your Bible and turn to 1 John and chapter 2 this morning. 1 John chapter 2. If you're a first-time guest with us today, certainly glad that you are here, thankful uh, that you're able to gather with us in worship. If you don't have a Bible, there is one in the seat in front of you, and that is our gift to you. We could think of nothing greater to send you home with than a copy of God's Word, as it has changed all of our lives. 1 John chapter 2 is where we will be this morning. We've learned so much in just two short chapters. We, we know from this letter that we live in a difficult world. We live in a spiritually dark world, a world that lies in the power of the evil one. And we've learned that our only joy that we can have in life in that dark world comes from knowing God, from having fellowship with Him through Christ. The, the church today faces many difficulties, many problems. If you take the church in 2021, what you will find as a historical reality is that many people in our nation have left the church altogether. And that has caused a great number of people to rise up and suggest man-centered ways of solving the problem of the great exodus from the church. We, we seek not the things of God so much in many churches today as to entertain or to console, to toy with the emotions of people, to, well, the Bible says, to make merchandise of men, to count the number of heads and the amount of offerings given, and to gauge our success in what is called the church by those metrics. But what we find in 1 John is that there is only one way to have joy. And again, that is by knowing God. John says, in light of this, he says, I am writing to you that you may have joy in the fellowship that you have with the Father and with the Son. He goes on to say that there is a great danger that is facing the church. As we seek to love the body well and to flee the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the pride of life, there is going to be this danger of being led astray. There is this great spiritual battle that the church will face. Look at what he says in verse 26 of chapter 2. I write these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you. He, he's not veiled that the problem that will come against the church far off in the year 2021 is that people will seek to deceive the elect of God. Mark it down. That is going to be the challenge of the church. The challenge of the church and whether or not she is successful cannot be counted on an offering spreadsheet or in a head count. Because all of those things might show a progression and at the same time we've lost the truth. We've lost the real gospel. And so knowing that we live in a dark world and that the problem that is going to press in against the church continually is that of deception. 
John writes here in these final pass and in this final passage all the way from verse 18 through the end of chapter 2 to verse 29 in really three broad categories. He writes one about the reality of the nature of the spiritual conflict that we are engaged in at this very moment. Secondly, he writes about the means by which we realize that danger, the way in which we can perceive the danger of being deceived. And he tells us of the doctrine of the anointing of every believer, that it is by the work of the Spirit that our eyes are open and that we can discern truth from error. Seminaries don't produce clear theology. The Spirit of God does. And third, he writes a way about the way to avoid the dangers that arise. Now, this Morning, I'm going to deal primarily with the first of those categories, the reality of the nature of the spiritual conflict that we face. And friends, John is not unique and out on some limb here in what he's writing about. This is what the sum total of the New Testament speaks into the life of the church, that there is a spiritual battle and that that is the battle that the church is to be engaged in. And that we must have our wits about us. And we must rely upon God. Peter writes of this in 2 Peter. Uh, Of course, the passage that comes to mind for us who have been in the letter to the church at Ephesus recently is Paul writing in Ephesians chapter 6 telling us to put on the whole armor of God. We stand in a spiritual battle. Uh, We might be deceived into thinking that that spiritual battle is in a lull or it's not a big deal, but I promise you on the authority of the Word of God, that battle is raging at this very moment. So with that in mind, if you would do honor to the reading of God's Word and stand to your feet. John writing here under the inspiration of the Spirit of God. Eternal truth. He writes beginning in verse 18. Children, it is the last hour. And as you have heard, the Antichrist is coming. So now many Antichrists have come. Therefore, we know that this is the last hour. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out, that it might become plain that they all are not of us. But you have been anointed by the Holy One, and you all have knowledge. I write to you not because you, because you do not know the truth, but because you know it and because no lie is of the truth. Who is the liar but he who denies Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist. He who denies the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. Let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and in the Father. And this is the promise that He made to us eternal life. I write these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you. But the anointing that you received from Him abides in you, and you have no need that anyone should teach you, But as His anointing teaches you about everything and and is true and is no lie, just as it has taught you, abide in Him. And now, little children, abide in Him, 
so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. This is God's word to us today. Would you pray with me? Father God, we come before you thankful for these words. Would you do a work of grace in our lives and inscribe them on our hearts? In Christ's name, amen. You may be seated. The first thing that we need to take note of in this passage is the context of the writing. Uh, again, we, we, in a broad sense, we know from chapter 5, verse 19, uh, uh, of the context of the world in every age, post-fall, and, and jo- as John writes, we know that we are from God and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. That we live in a dark and fallen world. This is the condition of the world in verse 19 of chapter 5. But what we have here in verse 18 is a magnification of verse 19. Children, it is the last hour. And as you have heard, the Antichrist is coming. So now many Antichrists have come. Therefore, we know that it is the last hour. What John teaches us here is that we are living in the last hour. Now some point to this verse and they say, see, look at how foolish the church is that John wrote 2,000 years ago that it is the last hour and here we are 2,000 years off and nothing really has changed. John must be wrong because he said that his age was the last hour. Well, the fact is that the last hour is not a term just for John's generation only, but it is a term for the entire epoch that spans between Christ's return and and enthronement to His second coming. And it it encompasses the time from His ascension to His return. And in a general sense, then we know that even at this very hour, we are living in the last hour. The Bible speaks of Christ's return consistently with urgency that in every generation there might be an emphasis on our heart that we know that his return is imminent that it is close and and here's the reality the 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 reality is that the the letter that john has written here and in the context of the bible is an eternal letter and in the span of eternity two thousand years is merely an hour Or however long the time ends up being between Christ's ascension and His return. And we find in other places, Paul writing in 2 Thessalonians, that in fact there are things that have to happen before Christ is going to return. And so although it is the last hour, there are many things that have to happen in that hour before the Lord returns. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 3 and 4. Let no one deceive you in any way. For the day will not come unless the rebellion comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. There are things that have to be metered out before Christ's return. And so that's what has been happening from the time that John wrote this until this very hour. 
So what is indicative, what is indicated by this epic of the last hour? Well, one, we see first that they had been told, what had been revealed is that the Antichrist, singular, definite article, the Antichrist, was coming. And that ultimately, there were many Antichrists that had gone out into the world before His coming. The Antichrist in every age of the church over the past 2,000 years has been speculated about. In the first century, the first century church was convinced that the Antichrist would be a a person of Jewish descent who would come and take up uh, the position of the Antichrist before the coming of Christ. In the Middle Ages, the Catholic Church perceived that the Antichrist was actually nothing more than a political power and that that political power would be against the church. And there, those who came at the time of the Reformation, they pointed back to the Catholic Church and said, no, the Pope is the Antichrist. And the individual that sets on the throne of the Pope prior to the coming of Christ, that's where we will find the definite article Antichrist. Now, moderns are not bereft of their opinions about who the Antichrist is. In fact, I will tell you this. It is with much pastoral anguish that so many in the church strain after who might just be the Antichrist while ignoring all of the clear commands of Scripture. The Christian bookstore is filled with apocalyptic conjecture, but we couldn't find an explanation of a clear passage to love our neighbor to save our lives. Because thinking about this, the Antichrist, is riveting. It makes good movies. I mean, series of movies and that leads to revenue which means we can write more books which means we can build cottage industries around who this person is and if you're in politics I mean you have hit the jackpot because you can make those who you are opposed to the definite article antichrist what a gift to so many the problem is the Bible doesn't reveal explicitly who this person is. In fact, friends, what we need to under... Do you remember Deuteronomy 29.29? I think it was two years ago we had this inscribed on the bulletins. The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever that we may do all the words of the law. What that one passage teaches us is that our God is both a revealer He reveals himself in the pages of Scripture. He is also a concealer. There are some things that he has not told you. Now, there's a great number of things about the end times. And I'm not suggesting this morning that we should take those things lightly. But friends, there have been numerous individuals who have had great insight into the Scripture. And they come looking at the things of eschatology. And they come to plant their flag and say, I know for sure that this is true. And then let enough time go by and what they've said proves not to be true. We need to be very careful that we receive the things that are clearly revealed 
And the things that are concealed, we leave to the Lord. And that we're comfortable with that. That we trust the Lord in not revealing to us all of those things. He has not revealed explicitly who this Antichrist is. You see, beloved, the the fact is the Bible is not so much concerned with us knowing the very hour of Christ's return as it is concerned with us being prepared for that hour. The Bible is not here so that we can prognosticate the very moment of Christ's return, but that we might be molded into Christ's image and prepared for His second coming. Now, This passage also teaches us that many antichrists, plural, had gone out into the world. That that all throughout this last hour, the time between Christ's ascension and His second coming, that the number of antichrists will proliferate in the generations. That there will be many false teachers and liars and people who are actually against the gospel rise up amongst the church and claim to be teachers of the gospel. And in fact, we're not left here in this passage without a definition of who these antichrists are. 1 John chapter 2, verses 22 and 23. Who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the antichrist, he who denies the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. Those who are antichrists are individuals who undermine the teaching of Jesus being the Christ, the Messiah, the one who came to ransom us from our sin. There have been many antichrists who have risen up in America in the past 75 years to teach things like Jesus is just a great moral teacher. Or Jesus is just our example and if we would learn to love as He loves, then everything would be okay. But the fact is, friends, that's not why Jesus came. Yes, we should follow His example of of living a loving, sacrificial life. But the fact is, Jesus came as our atoning sacrifice that He at this very hour might be our advocate pleading His blood on our account. Jesus came not just merely to set an example, but to be the propitiation, the wrath-bearing sacrifice of our sin. To bridge the gap between us and God. To give us a way of actually having fellowship, which is the only way to have joy in this dark and twisted world. And any teacher that rises up to undermine that. And I promise you, these antichrists are not people that seem to be ogres. They're going to be individuals that smile at you. And that have smooth speech and who are able to convince you, boy, he just has a way about words. And and man, I I just want to love people better by listening to them. I want to be a better me. Well, friends, you can be the best you that you could ever be. But without Christ, you have no hope for eternity. We must not ever entertain these type, uh, types of teaching. And look at part of what is being said here in this passage. I think a whole sermon could be built on these two words. He who denies the Father and the Son. This is the Antichrist. He who denies the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. 
The word denies and the word confesses are both participles, ongoing actions. And and there is almost this picture in this verse of individuals, some of whom are walking away from Christ into worldly religion, into worldly things, pleasing themselves and setting up religious systems for themselves. And then there are those who with all of their lives are going to confess who Jesus is. And this isn't just mere lip service. What John is not teaching here is that if someone comes to you and says they believe in Jesus, then they are a Christian. That's not true. What he's saying is that these are individuals who go on confessing everything that the apostles and prophets have taught about who Christ is. They are clear in their theology. They are going on to learn more about who Christ is and they are following him. They who are in Christ will confess him not only as Savior, but also as Lord. There are so many people today who want the Jesus who is meek and mild, who is accepting and gentle, who will allow me to have the promise of an eternity, but a good time on Friday night. The reality is, the Jesus of the Bible is not a Jesus who leads you in the world, but one that calls you away from it. The Jesus of the Bible is one who calls you to repentance. The Jesus of the Bible is one who is sovereign, who is king who is judge, who is righteous and ruler. And those who teach partial truth about who Christ is are nothing more than antichrist. Those who deny part of the character of Christ are ultimately denying God Himself. Many, Jesus says, will come falsely in My name. Many antichrists here, this passage says, will go out into the world. Now, let me ask you this. Does that mean more to you and I today, or does it mean more to the first audience that heard this letter? By implication, you and I face more opposition from an entire history of Antichrist. Of people who have risen in the church to teach doctrines that suited their own passions for their own desires and their own ends. And so this is what that means. Theology matters. What we teach about who Jesus is and how He has saved His people and when He's coming, all of it matters. Because we must not speak uh, according to the dictates of our own flesh, our own desires, or our own backgrounds. We must speak accordingly to the Word of God. Now what is the effect of all of these false teachers? What happens because we live 2,000 years downstream of the reality of the beginning of Antichrist proliferating in the world? What is the outcome in the church? Well, the first outcome is false religion. That many will come falsely in Christ's name. That there will be many churches raised up that will have a steeple on top and a cross over the door and Christ's name in the, in the ban- on the banner outside somewhere, but Jesus actually has no spiritual part in those movements whatsoever. That's one of the implications. Secondly, it means division. Look at verse 19. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out, that it may become plain that they are not all of us. 
There is division that happens because there are some who are truly in Christ and there are some who are anti-Christ, who are opposed to the actual gospel of the Lord. Now, I'm not talking about denominational distinctives. Albert Moeller has, I think, rightly coined, I believe he coined this, the uh, equation about denominations. And that is, in America, conviction plus religious freedom equals denomination. The fact that we can disagree about a particular passage is going to mean that we're going to meet different places on Sunday morning and we may be part of the body of Christ. So I'm not talking about denominational divisions this morning. This is a particular type of division that is mentioned in verse 19. And this type of division is a group of people that had professed to be followers of Christ, but seeking the passions of their own flesh and desires, they had left the church altogether. So one, false teachers, antichrist, by implication mean false religion, division, and finally, antichrist's ultimately lead to discouragement. I mean, friends, it's really easy to look at this passage and say, well, some people were leaving the church. Okay. But can you imagine as, as John is riding against these Gnostic heretics, he's, he's riding not against a nebulous group of people that a theological dictionary is going to define. As these people received this letter, he was riding against their neighbors. He was riding against people who were probably part of the same family. He was riding to fathers whose sons had departed the faith once for all delivered to the saints. He, he, he was riding in such a way that it was genuinely causing discouragement in a human sense that you see people leave the church. To the recipients of this letter, their friends, their co-workers, their family. These people had names and faces. They had experienced something with these individuals, with these Gnostic heretics, that they thought was fellowship. They had sat across and had fellowship dinner. So they had to have been saved when they come to the potluck. These were people that they had spent their lives raising their children next to. This was painful. It was discouraging that they were to depart. Now let's take that implication of the discouragement and the difficulty of watching people leave the church and apply it to our day. Beloved, we have seen a nation that has gone from being largely churched to, and largely believing to one where the gospel is not even welcome in our schools and definitely not in our government. We have seen the nation that has been, if we read our history right, swept with revival, and now we see a nation plagued with atheism, cleared of any room for biblical conviction. Some of you have had friends that have left this church. You've had children grow up professing the faith only to go on to live lives, pursuing the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. And it is heartbreaking to you. First year of my ministry here, personally. Many people patted me on the back when I was voted in as pastor and said, you, were, you got 94% of the vote, way to go. Privately, I told my wife, 40% of the 90% voted for me because they think that I will do their bidding. 
And I had to look in people's faces and say, no, it's not appropriate for the church of God to engage in being part of homosexual weddings. And they walked out those doors. Preached the doctrine of election. People get angry. Walk out those doors. It's not easy. The truth is going to divide. There are going to be people in every generation who say, I want Jesus. But the second that Jesus calls a man to stand with his Bible open and proclaim the truth, people are going to go, wait a minute, not that Jesus. I want the Jesus that I met in the coloring book in the nursery, but I don't want him leaving that coloring book because I want to color him whatever way I want. Difficult, isn't it? Brings discouragement. It's discouraging. To, it, it, it's nebulous to look at this and say some went out from among us because they weren't of us. Huh. It's a little bit more real when you put names and faces and souls to verse 19. It's enough to make you want to cry. To just weep over the reality of people who have come so close to knowing Christ and yet have departed the faith once for all delivered to the saints. So here's the better question. What does John have to say to the church amid such division and discouragement? What does John have to say to us today as the church is on decline? As we turn on our TV and the... uh, Political pundits are telling us that the church's authority in politics is waning and and, and the church's influence in the community is, is falling away. What would John say to us as those who were among us depart from us? What would John say? Well, the first thing is he would say, don't be distressed and don't be surprised by this. Verse 18 again, children, it is the last hour. And as you have heard that, Antichrist, that the Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore, we know that it's the last hour. Beloved, know this, that in this age, people are going to depart from the faith. People are going to leave. There is difficulty coming. This is the last hour. Mark it down. Don't be surprised. There's no, nothing more discouraging than seeing an individual or even a nation fall into unbelief to see so many churches empty out or worse, so many churches being filled with worldliness. So many churches that are standing together strong this morning, but they're standing together based off of the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the pride of life. And this has been the reality of America for years. So So much so that many have become convinced that God really does need our help in building the church back up. We need to interject our ideas and our theologies and our inventions and our views. If we don't do something quickly, the church, some say, may die. Those views are all antithetical to the New Testament. The apostles... Look throughout your Bible. The apostles, as people were departing the faith in mass, were never caught saying, Timothy, you better run after them and put more Greek culture into the church so that people are happy at church. 
That's never what you find Paul telling Timothy. In fact, consistently, what is explained to the church is that this is going to be a reality. People are going to defect from the church. There, in fact, are wolves among you. Be alert and on lookout for who they are. There is an idea in our minds that a successful church in any generation is a large group of people. And if the the church is living rightly and doing what she's supposed to be doing, then that means her numbers have to proliferate and the offerings have to go through the roof and all of those Uh, All of those kinds of thoughts. But nothing could be further from the truth. In fact, the Bible supposes apostasy. It supposes oppression. It supposes that some will depart from the faith once for all delivered to the saints. Jesus himself in the parable about the individual that was praying, the woman praying incessantly... Ask this question at the, at the conclusion of verse 8 of Luke chapter 18. Nonetheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith in the earth? The question is never how many heads can we count and how, many, how much offering can we take and all of the metrics that we get caught up in about success of the church. The question is, when Christ comes, will there be faith found on the earth? Will we be faithful to the truth, to the gospel, once for all delivered to the saints? The the church is never, in the pages of Scripture, promised an increase, a consistent growth. And so we should not be distressed and disturbed at the great falling away that we see in our own generation. As, As we see entire denominations crumble, that should not cause us to fear. It shouldn't surprise us. Because that's the reality of church history. The church ebbs and flows. So first, we shouldn't be surprised. We shouldn't be distressed. Secondly, in the last hour of the church, the church's great concern should be the purity of her doctrine. Children, it is the last hour. And as you have heard, that Antichrist is coming. So now, many Antichrists... Have come, therefore we know that the that it is the last hour. They went out from us because but they were not of us, for if they had been of us, they would have continued with us, but they went out, that it may become plain that they all are not of us. Thousands had left the church, giving was off, people were being martyred by the government. And what is John's concern here? Does John write a letter saying, boy, you need to give more? Does John say, oh my goodness, we have a shortfall in missions. You better crank up the heat on putting out some more pamphlets about missions. Does he internalize that we've got to quit upsetting people with these things that Paul talks about? Doctrine. No, John writes an entire letter that is filled with doctrine. He's concerned with the teaching. He's concerned with making sure that the church actually understands who Jesus is and what he is doing in the earth. He's concerned about a clear explanation of Jesus as the Messiah, the Trinity, and the work of redemption. The entire letter is consumed with doctrine. John doesn't put it to a committee and, and, and try to find out the best way to get more Greeks back together. 
He doesn't appeal to the culture. He stands flat-footed and he proclaims weighty doctrine. There's this lie that creeps into the church that if we would just get over our doctrine, we could have true unity. But can I tell you this morning that we can't have true unity without doctrine. We can't have unity without agreeing on what the Bible is actually teaching. Now, I'm not saying there can't be peripheral theological issues that we're going to disagree upon in the body of Christ. Certainly, that is true. But what is, what is at stake here and what John is concerned about is that the church would not cave to Gnosticism. It was better in John's mind if individuals left the church with their heretical doctrine and left only a few than it would be for many to stay behind and have false teaching. So what matters is that we are concerned not primarily with numbers, but that our primary concern in the great falling away must be on the purity of the church's doctrine. Friends, the Bible, I don't know what it is about us, but we really do in our natural man just believe if we are in the majority, if 50% of the population agrees with us, then by golly, we're right. But the Bible has this way and, uh, of showing contempt for the multitudes. The Bible has this consistent message all the way through that a multitude of people opposed to God is really a minority. In fact, one of the verses that we read this morning, you remember that narrative where Gideon is told to pare down his army. Judges chapter 7, the Lord said to Gideon, the people with you are too many for me to give the Midianites into their hands. Least Israel boast over me saying, my own hands have saved me. Beloved, I believe that that moniker is the is the motto of the modern American church. My own hands have saved me. And what does God tell Gideon to do? You better figure out a church growth strategy, Gideon. You better go out and build up a big army. He, he doesn't do that. He says, we're going to divide out these people. We're going to dwindle it all the way down to a very small group. And why? So that my glory will be known. So that there's no one that will ever say, we saved ourselves with our own hands. Amen. There's this doctrine of the remnant that is all throughout Scripture. That though the world is going the, the way of destruction and death, God is always bringing along His people. Now I think some people take that doctrine of the remnant too far and they kind of build churches where we want to push people away. That shouldn't be our desire. Our desire should be for the purity of, the doctrine, uh, purity of doctrine in the church. And if the purity of doctrine drives someone away... They went out from us because they were not of us. I mean, Paul told Timothy. Timothy, this young pastor, he comes to this church and it is an absolute mess. 
I mean, it's in dismay. The people were following false teaching everywhere. They were living in debauchery. The leadership was an absolute hot mess. What does Paul say to Timothy in the midst of all of that apostasy? 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 19. But God's firm foundation stands, bearing the seal. The Lord knows those who are His, and let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. Now this is worthy of its own exposition. Just the word foundation and seal. What, what Paul is telling Timothy is, Son, you need to understand something. As sure as a foundation has been laid under your feet in the temple, so God has laid the foundation of His church and it will not be shaken. And a seal was, a, was an emblem that was paste, placed on a book or a, a letter that gave authenticity authenticity to that particular uh, instrument, that particular document. And, and what Paul is encouraging Timothy with is, if you can trust Timothy, the foundation of the building in which you are standing as you read this letter, know that God Himself has set the foundation of His church. He knows those who are His. He is not attempting to save anyone. He is going to save His church. You preach the truth in season and out of season. That's what he's saying. And he's saying, preach a message not of warm fuzzies, but one that helps individuals conform to the image of Christ. The Lord knows who are His. And let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. So first, John would tell us, don't be surprised, don't be distressed. He secondly would say, pursue pure doctrine. And third, he would say, Examine yourselves. They went out from us because they were not of us. But there's a better question here. What about us? What about those of us who are here today? Some people will say, well, I've been a member of this church for years. I've served in this committee. I've served in this capacity. I've professed faith from a very young age. But the fact is, they went out from us because they were not of us. They had been part of us for a long time. They had served in many different areas. Some of these people may in fact been pastors. But it was proven in time that they were not of us. The fact that you are a church member, the fact that you profess faith, does not actually make you a Christian. R.C. Sproul said, No one has ever been saved by a profession of faith. You must have a possession of faith. You must actually be believing in this moment on the finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ if in fact you are a Christian. And so the question is, are you a Christian? They went out from us even though they were at one time with, with us. Now this type of encouragement. Examine yourselves. Make sure that you're in the faith. Make sure you're not depending on all of these peripheral religious things. Make sure you're not dependent upon some peripheral prayer. Friends, there are so many people in the body. I, I don't know how many funerals I have to go officiate over where I sit down with a family and there's some young person and I mean this with all kindness. May God be praised forever that he brings people out of addictions. But at times, people are succumb, they succumb to their addictions. 
And in young age, and the family will look at me and say something to the effect of, well, this individual prayed a prayer when they were seven years old. Did they show love for Christ? Were they growing in the faith? Uh, Was there fruit? And the answer is no. But preacher, it's your job to stand up and to say that we know with all assurance the eternal state of this individual. Now friends, what we really, the truth is, we just don't know so many times. God knows who are His. But the fact is, a profession of faith, a prayer, is not what tells us whether or not you are actually in the faith. What tells us whether or not you are in the faith is if you continue with us. And so you know what that means? Us is a really important word. Who is the us? Is it the Baptists? Is it the Presbyterians? Is it what? This has to be in some group, right? I believe the us is the sum total every scripture, and there are multitudes, beloved. Every scripture that speak of the elect of God are they, they find a home in the word us. This is talking about the church of God gathered from every tribe, nation, and tongue. Are you continuing with the church of God? So here's the reality in light of that. And I I hope I can land this rabbit trail quickly because we got to go on. But the fact is entire church movements can, can go with the world and there can be this feeling that, well, well, we're still part of a church, so we're okay. Not if you are not living on the pure doctrine that the apostles and prophets have laid down as a foundation for the true church of the living God. Question is, are you continuing in the faith? Do you have a vital relationship to the saints? Do you love the church with your whole heart? It's kind of the difference between having a casual relationship with the fourth neighbor down the block. You know who they are and you might maybe know their last name versus your own family. And you really do genuinely care for every member of that family. And what it means to continue with us is to be part of the church, caring not just for your own nuclear family, but for all of the body of Christ. To genuinely love those who are longing for the appearing of Christ. I think the word us can be summarized greatly in the group that Jesus speaks about in John chapter 6, starting in verse 37. All that the Father has given me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come from heaven not to do my own will, but to do the will of Him who sent me. And this is the will of Him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that He has given me, but I will raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son of God and believes in Him will have eternal life, and I will raise Him up on the last day. That entire group of people who will follow Jesus, who will hear His voice. Are you continuing with that group of people? Again, Paul echoing out 
through time, but God's firm foundation stands, bearing the seal. The Lord knows those who are His. Let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. So one, we shouldn't be distressed or surprised by the great falling away in the church today. We should pursue sound doctrine and we should examine ourselves. And finally, beloved, when we see people falling away from the church, we shouldn't look in fear and trembling and go, well, it's all going to fall apart. That's our tendency. But what we should do is remember the Word of God and know that in people leaving, God is at work still. You see, to the religionist, to the man who ultimately only wants to see multitudes built up so that more money can come through the coffers and all of that, Individuals leaving is the greatest discouragement. But beloved, our God is not into revenue streams. He's in the business of redemption. And He's decided who He's going to redeem before the foundation of the world. He's not called men to possibly go out and present a potential salvation. He's called messengers to go throughout the world turning on the light to the Gospel that His church would come to faith. Reminds me of this passage in Luke chapter 3. As the people were in expectation and all were questioning in their hearts concerning John, whether he might be the Christ, John answered them all saying, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming. The strap of whose sandals I am unworthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn. But the chaff he will burn with an unquenchable fire. What that passage teaches is that God has a winnowing fork in his hand. He has a fork whereby the the, the chaff, the, the part that is unusable and, and the wheat are separated. And he is gathering together the useful wheat for his own glory. There is actual redemptive work happening in division. Don't be discouraged by it. God is dividing the wheat from the tares, the wheat from the chaff. And in those days when the church looked so prosperous, when, when the church looked like there were so many people just heaping in, beloved, let me encourage you, you need to look closer into church history and realize most of the time in those particular generations, there were laws, there were pressures that would push people into the gathering of the saints, though they were not actually redeemed of God. There were individuals who were in the church because of their own fleshly desires, because there was a business interest, because their family wanted them to go, and because and fill in the blank. But it wasn't God who had called them to be part of the church. And so when we see days where the church seems to be dwindling, be encouraged that the gates of hell will not prevail against the bride of Christ and that God is actually in the division doing His redeeming work. His winnowing fork is in His hand. That is why... 
In fact, John says that these people went out. He doesn't say that it was really of their own doing. God providentially allowed their departure. And why? Look at the end of verse 19. They went out that it might become plain that they weren't of us. God is in fact in the division giving clarity to who His church really is. John is saying it is the last hour. And if you continue in this church, then you know that you are part of the the redeemed of God. If you continue with us, then rejoice because that that is giving you an assurance of your salvation that you have not departed. And here's the question, why haven't you departed? When so many other people are giving way to the doctrines of men and caving to homosexual unions and to moralistic teaching of the gospel and to Arminianism and to all of the other false teachings of men, why don't you go that way? Paul would answer very simply, the Lord knows those who are His. The reason that you have not found yourself as being the individual to to depart from the faith once for all delivered to the saints isn't because you're smart. It's not because you have a keen grasp on theology. It is because the sovereign hand of an almighty God has a grasp on you. And you can rest in that. You can rest in the joy knowing let the foundations of the earthly church crumble. Let all of the institutions of religion in America be shaken. But I will not be discouraged. I won't be moved. I will continue to seek purity in my understanding of doctrinal truths about the the Christ who saved me. I won't be discouraged because the Lord knows that are His, those who are His. As it turns out, the winnowing fork in every generation is in His hand. And so are all of those who will one day see glory. You see, beloved, when all of the people in the press and the sociologists and the individuals who are part of atheistic movements that want to push the church into the peripheral are having their heyday, we need to be reminded that the church is not on a path to demise. She's on a path to glory. And in the right time and at the right moment, she will rise only by the sovereign hand of grace. Would you pray with me? Father God, what a gift it is to rest in You. What a joy it is to know that as we rest in Your truth, as we proclaim the goodness of Christ as the only way to have fellowship with the Father, and Father, you are being exalted. That you are doing your work. That you are drawing those unto yourself that you would. Father, we pray that as a church we would be committed not to man-centered ideology, but that we would be committed to doing what we are going to do with joy for all of eternity, and that is to glorify your name. Father, if it comes through suffering and distress, if it comes through times of discouragement, if it comes through times where many fall away from the faith, as long as your name is glorified in all of the earth, we will be content with that lot. Father, we are so thankful that in spite of who we are, you set your love upon us before the foundation of the world. In Jesus' name.
Amen. Amen.